So, I want to start this morning with snippets of two imaginary obituaries. Imaginary obituary. I'm going to say that much to you. And the question I want you to ask yourself as you listen to these imaginary obituaries is which one wasted their life? Okay? The first one was a upper middle class guy was 92. He had provided for his family very comfortably all of his life. Retired early on a comfortable income. Passed away in his sleep peacefully. People said nice stuff about him at his funeral. Second is a 23-year-old young lady who was involved in an accident in Cameroon, Africa, when her car lost its brakes. She had a slot reserved at Harvard Law School the following fall, but lost her life in Cameroon. Who wasted their life? Don't answer the question yet. We'll get there when we get to the end. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2 today, and I really, really, really wanted to cover all 23 verses because this is one narrative. This is the king's infancy, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't cover all 23. There's too much here, too much going on. So we're going to cover verses 1 through 12, but we're going to read verses 1 through 23 in our public reading so that we get the whole story And then we'll conclude the story after today's message. So if you would, in reverence of the God of the Word, stand, if you can and will, for the reading of the Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod 
when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. God, we rejoice in your word, we rejoice in your people, we rejoice in the power of your spirit, and ask that you would use these things, these people, this morning to draw us closer to you and help us to understand who you are and how you would have us to spend our lives. We ask for help in the name of Jesus, and amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, we're going to set uh, people, place, time, that kind of thing. We've got to set this historically. We've got to figure out what time this is, who's involved, where it's at, that kind of thing. So the first thing we're going to do is we have a kind of a time stamp here at the beginning. And it's a pretty open time stamp. It says, after Jesus was born. So when did this happen? When is chapter 2 happening? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So there's our time stamp. So let's set this. Herod the Great, who this is referring to, reigned from around 40 B.C. till his death in 4 B.C. But wait, if he's alive after Jesus' birth, how could he have died in a B.C. year? Because what does B.C. mean? Before Christ, right? So he died B.C., but he was reigning when Jesus was born. Anybody confused yet? So was Jesus born B.C. before Christ? And actually, yes. Yes, he was. Let me explain that to you. The guy named Tim Chaffee, writing for Answers in Genesis, explains it this way. Quote, It is true that Jesus was born during the reign of Herod the Great. That's what we just read. And based on strong historical evidence, it is generally agreed upon that Herod died in 4 B.C. How could Jesus have been born in the period designated as B.C., in other words, before Christ? While there are many intricacies to explain every alteration to the calendar during the past two millennia, the short answer is that the basis for our modern calendar began in A.D. 525 when Dionysius Exegus the Little, I'll leave that right there, was commissioned to develop a standard calendar for the Western Church. He decided to start the calendar in A.D. 1. Makes sense. A.D. is Anno Dominus... What, huh? 1981? No, not, not 1980. A.D. S-O-C-K-S, right? <laughs> so he decided to start the calendar in A.D. Anno Dominus, which is the year of our Lord, A.D. But his calculations were off by approximately four years. Doggone it. Should have Googled it. 
Let me finish the quote. Given that Herod ordered the slaughter of all the children two years old and younger in Bethlehem, it is possible that Jesus was about two years old at the time. Thus, the year of Jesus' birth may have been about 6 or 5 B.C. So now you know. And knowing is half the battle. So that's the end of the quote. So when Matthew says that we're looking at a time period after Jesus was born and before Herod the king died, that puts us somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. Okay? This would make sense too when we take into account later that Herod says, kill the babies two years old and younger like he mentioned, to try to kill the baby Jesus which puts us in that two-year period between Jesus' birth and Herod's death. So there's that. Now, it's also important to note the places mentioned here. Anytime you're studying your Bible, time, location, note these things because they're important. And study up on those times, on those locations. It's very important. So the places mentioned here are Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and the east. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay? Um, Jerusalem, pretty well known, we're pretty clear there. Jerusalem was the seat of power, the place of the temple, and was called the holy city. Actually, Psalm 48 calls it the city of the great king, which could apply to David or God himself. It was the city we looked at so long in Ezra and Nehemiah. That's where all of Ezra and Nehemiah took place. And in our intertestamental study, we saw when the Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt and rule, when they took Jerusalem, then they were legitimized and seen as an actual self-ruling people. So the importance of Jerusalem cannot be overstated in the mind of the Jewish people. Jerusalem was the place to be. Then there's Bethlehem. If you look at this map here, and I don't know if you'll be able to see this or not, you can't see Jerusalem. It's a, Jerusalem's a dot up top, and then Bethlehem's down there with the flag, with the path leading from it. So Bethlehem's only about five miles from Jerusalem. Okay? Bethlehem has a lot of heritage in common with Jerusalem, especially revolving around one, king's, uh, one person specifically, and that's King David. David was from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was actually called the town of David, or city of David, which sometimes Jerusalem was too. David grew up in Bethlehem and he ruled as king in Jerusalem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread. And that won't mean a lot to us today, but if you read the book of Ruth, it has a whole lot to do and makes a lot of sense in that context. But what we have here in Matthew 2.1 is Jesus being born in and living in Bethlehem. Tiny little place. And the wise men, who are also called magi, which is really a better word, come to Jerusalem looking for the newborn king. And then the star leads them to Bethlehem. It's like, okay, let's put it in our terms, okay? So like they came to Beckley, you know, because there's an outback in Beckley. That makes it important. And they found out, oh, actually, he's in Helen, right? That's kind of how we can set this, right? He didn't come, they came to the big place, but they found out that he was in the little place. So, regarding that then, the big place, the little place, let's look at the players in today's account and for the whole chapter. We see three very important players in our passage today, in our verse from today. We saw Jesus, we saw Herod the king, And we saw wise men from the east. Those are the three people that we're going to really focus on. There'll be another group that comes in later, but right here we have these three. So we have King Jesus, who at this point is an infant or young child, possibly as young as a few months old, 
maybe as old as two years. Okay, we don't know for sure. Uh, but that's our range. And note that he and his family are living in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary had gone to Bethlehem from Nazareth to register for the census that Luke mentions. And while they were there, came time for Mary to give birth. She gave birth. They apparently stayed there. We don't really know why exactly, but they apparently stayed there in Bethlehem. So the eternal king, remember that's how Matthew frames Jesus up. The eternal king who is to reign forever on David's throne is born in and living in David's town in his infant years. So we'll just leave that right right there as far as Jesus is concerned. But who else is mentioned? King Herod. This is Herod the Great. Herod the king. We met Herod, the king, this, this king we're talking about, in our trip through the intertestamental period too. He was an Edomite, which means he was a descendant of Esau, who lived in Idumea, which was south of Judea. So he, he came from down south here. You can't see his place on the map. He had come to power by being well-connected to Roman rulers and was appointed king of Judea and surrounding territories by Roman appointment. He was also bolstered in the area by being married to a woman who was a Hasmonean. Remember them in the intertestamental period? They were the ruling Jewish family after the Maccabean revolt. She was one of his ten wives, by the way. But he married a Hasmonean, which gave him some standing with the Jewish people. His wife had a brother who was the high priest in the time that Herod was appointed king. So you kind of see why, what he's doing there. He's trying to get into the power, which he did. But he was a very anxious and nervous ruler, looking to preserve his throne at any cost, often murdering anyone he thought might be a threat to it, including his brother-in-law, the high priest. He ended up murdering him. He ended up murdering his wife, three of his sons, his mother-in-law, and many, many other people. You want to know what kind of guy this is? Let me read you a story that John MacArthur tells about him. Something that happened just before he died. Here's a quote from John MacArthur. Quote, Herod was about to die. I mean, he knew he was about to die. It was a matter of days. So he retired to Jericho. He gave orders that a collection of the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem should be made. So collecting distinguished citizens. Get all of them, arrest them, and trump up charges and put them all in prison. All the most distinguished Jewish citizens of the city. And he said, the moment I die, slaughter them all. And they said to him, why? And he said, because no one will mourn when I die. And I am determined that when I die, there will be mourning in this city. This was not a nice guy. You should look up the story of how he killed Aristobulus, which is his brother-in-law who was the high priest. Look that up. I won't tell it this. That'll be your homework. Dastardly. This man is dastardly. Okay? But he was a great leader. He was very decisive. In his young years, he was an excellent athlete, and he was a magnificent builder. He had great vision for building cities, and he built multiple cities in his territory and started a massive expansion of the Jewish temple which was there from Ezra's time. And if you look here on this picture, you see the square or the rectangle in the middle there? That was kind of Ezra's temple that was built around their time. You see this great expansion all around it? That's Herod. Okay, Herod did that. And it was something to behold. It's, he started on working on this temple around 20 B.C., and the work didn't finish until about 63 A.D., which was well after his death. So, I mean, they did some stuff to this temple. By the way, it gets destroyed in 70 A.D., but that's not in our story today. 
And this is actually referred to as Herod's temple in a lot of historical documents. And in the midst of all his work and worry, Herod was mainly characterized by a fear of losing his rule. So, imagine his shock when our next folks roll into town. The wise men from the east. A lot of information on these guys that I had no idea about. John MacArthur actually has a one-hour sermon on the Magi. And it is fantastic. Look it up. Matthew 2.1, an hour. I wish I could share it all with you, but I won't. We've got some misconceptions about these wise men, right? Don said it this morning. We three kings of Orient are... How many were there? Well, we don't know, okay? It just says wise men from the east. Do you see, do you see a, a, a descriptor of, or number of wise men here? Behold, three wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. I don't see it, y'all. Okay? We don't know how many there were. We know there was more than one because it's wise men. Okay? We know that they were male because it's wise men. But we don't know how many. Okay? Now, behind every wise man is a wiser woman, right? So there must have been a lot of women with them too. But we don't, ha- we don't have a number. Three is the most common number that we get just because of the gifts that they brought, which was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So people take the gifts. Three gifts must have been three wise men. But the Bible gives us no number. It just says men. Could have been a really big number. We really don't know. I mean, it could have been a bunch. Now, another misconception is that their names were Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. Don't say that. I don't see names, right? It's not in your footnotes. It's not there, y'all. Some people say that they're a collection of people from all over the world, from Africa, Greece, and other places, but it says plainly here that they were from the east, from the east of Judea, Jerusalem. So to the east of Judea was the Parthian Empire, which was the old Persian Empire, which had been the Babylonian Empire, which had been the Assyrian Empire. And these folks, these people here, these wise men, were actually called Magi, which is not short for anything, but rather a group of people within the Persian people who were like priests, but more than priests, they're like priests and royal advisors. They were advisors and king appointers. Nobody became king in the Parthian or Persian Empire without the Magi recommending and approving them. And they weren't kings. Sorry, we three kings. You suck. You're wrong. But rather, they chose who the king would be. A very interesting point of information is found in Daniel 2.48. Check this out. This is after Daniel had given the dream to Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar had in the Babylonian Empire he not just gave him the dream, but he interpreted it. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Those wise men are our magi. Different time period. Now we're 600 years before. But Daniel was put in authority over the magi, over this tribe of priests slash advisors when he was in Babylon. And he carried that position through when the Persians took over from the Babylonians. So Daniel, our Daniel, you know, remember the statue and the beasts and stuff? That Daniel? Lion's Den Daniel? Y'all might know him better that way. Lion's Den Daniel. He was the chief of the wise men, of the Magi. And he maintained that position for a long time. Now, if Daniel was chief of these men, why do you think they had knowledge about what may be happening in Judea with the Jews and a prophesied ruler? 
Where do you think their information came from? They had to be very familiar with the Jewish Scriptures because Daniel was going to teach them the Jewish Scriptures because that's what Daniel did. Okay, So these guys, these, these wise men, magi, were mainly astrologers and astronomers basing so much of what they did on stars and heavenly bodies, which would explain the star thing later. But they were also purveyors of ancient knowledge. And I just use the word purveyor. Can you all just... Okay, no reward in heaven for me there. I just got it all right there. I'm going to say it again. You don't have to clap this time. So they, they, they used stars to gather information, but they were also purveyors of ancient knowledge and absolutely positively had extensive knowledge of the Hebrew and Jewish Scriptures since Daniel had so much time with them and influence over them. Okay? That's who these people are. And again, look up that hour-long message that John MacArthur... It's awesome. Incredible information. So, now these folks from the East, these wise men, these magi, roll up in Jerusalem. What are they saying? Verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these magi come asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Well, you reckon that might cause some problems? They came looking for a newly born Jewish king. There was a buzz in the world historically at that time that someone born in Judea would rise and rule the whole world. I wonder where that thought came from, huh? These magi would have had such an inside track on the ins and outs of this from Daniel's influence 600 years before. And as they search the stars for signs, they see a star rise and take it into account with their knowledge of Jewish prophecy and they say, this is it. This is our sign. The king is born. And we have to go to him. Now why? Not to curry favor with a monarch, but it says that they have come to worship Him. Now kings are one thing, but these people are wise enough to know that this one who has been born deserves worship. This king, this newly born king, is deity. And these eastern wise men magi guys know this. And they came so that they can behold and worship the king who they know is God. These guys were at least dancing around the truth, if not having totally embraced the truth that Jesus was God. Now, how do you think Herod took this visitation from these powerful king appointers from the east? Well, let's just say he ain't happy. Verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was troubled. You figure? Something that the text doesn't say, and history tells us, is that when these magi traveled, they traveled with well-armed, highly trained troops to protect them. So this was not just some guys on camels coming gaga-eyed into Jerusalem hoping to see a famous person. They were with their secret service detail, looking like an army prepared for battle, coming from the Parthian Empire, which was in constant conflict and a constant threat and provocateur to the Roman Empire. So an army rolls up with king appointers and they're like, we're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Now imagine being Herod. Scared somebody's going to take your throne and an army from the east shows up ready for battle if need be and is looking for the new king. 
also, history tells us, Herod's army, which would normally have protected him, was away on other battle business on behalf of the Roman Empire. So Herod's got no army. Herod was, to say the least, troubled. The word troubled means to be or become characterized by or indicative of distress or affliction or danger or need. And I think that pretty well sums him up. And look after that, it says not only was Herod troubled, but all Jerusalem with him. Now wait a minute, Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Jerusalem is the holy place, the place where the Jewish people believe that God's going to come down and reign and rule forever after He sends His Messiah. So why would Jerusalem be troubled if someone showed up looking for a newly born king of the Jews? Shouldn't they be thrilled, excited and rejoicing at the thought of being delivered from Rome and maybe getting their own king? Well, maybe, it seems, they have come to care more about political comfort than God worship. They were probably as alarmed by Herod's alarm than anything else. You've heard the old saying, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Well, let's just say if Herod ain't happy, the Jews aren't safe. A nervous Herod would spell bad news for Jews living under his rule. All Jerusalem was scared that Herod might take out his fear and anger on them. So they're troubled along with him. So what did Herod do? Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod calls on the chief priests and scribes of the people. Now who are these people? Well, historically, Jewish priests were born priests. You had to be of a certain bloodline to be a priest. You had to be Aaron's son to be a priest. Well, at the time of Matthew 2, after our intertestamental period study, there were still Aaronic priests, people from Aaron's line. But there were also those who had become priests in a way to gain power. It had nothing to do with birth or blood. It was about power. And here's where we get our Pharisees and scribes and other sects and groups that we'll, that we'll be very familiar with in the New Testament and later on in Matthew. Anyone could be a scribe if they committed to studying the Scriptures. And now, anyone can be a priest if they want to pay the price and grab some power. We'll see more about these groups as we move through Matthew. But for now, know that these chief priests and scribes are powerful people that Herod could reach out to and get insight into the Jewish Scriptures that he didn't have. And here he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. He wants to know where this newborn king that these wise men slash magi were looking for was supposed to come from. And they reply, verses 5 and 6, They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And they're quoting Micah 5.2 there. There's some differences as far as what's in Matthew here and what's in Micah. That's not real weird, by the way. We'll talk about interpretation next week, especially about prophecy. But if you want to look up Micah 5.2, you'll see there's some differences. That's not real weird. And stay with us so that you can understand this interpretation thing next week. We're not going to go there today. So we'll just say to their credit, they knew that the promised ruler of the Jews was coming from Bethlehem. So they quote Micah 5.2 to Herod, which says that a ruler would come from the land of Judah in the town of Bethlehem. So they answer Herod's question with a clear answer from Scripture. Good job. But wait, shouldn't they be excited about this too? These scribes? These chief priests? 
They don't appear to be. They're just rattling off information to make the king happy and help him achieve his goals because that kept them comfortable. So they help him achieve his goals, which as it turns out, aren't really good goals. Verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Oh, so Herod wants to worship this child. Yeah, we believe that, right? We know later on in the text it says that he had ill intent. But uh, if you believe that he wanted to go worship this newborn king... Me and George Strait have some oceanfront property in Arizona that we'd like to sell you. Herod summons the wise men to hopefully get some inside information from them. He wants to know when they first saw this star that they saw and do some calculations. And he then sends them ahead to Bethlehem asking them to go on and find the child and after they do to let him know where the child is so he can come worship as well. Herod wants to know where his next victim is, so he employs these excited magi to find him for him. Herod wants to kill the child, further proving that he will stop at nothing to protect himself, his interests, and his power. No baby is going to take his kingdom away. And he'll kill him if he has to, and he will if he can get his hands on him. Verses 9 and 10. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So the Magi head on out, and as they go, the star that they saw in Persia went before them. Now wait a second. Think about that. Makes me think that this star, quote, was a little more than just a a ball of gas and fire in space somewhere. There's a lot of theories as to what this star was. They say Jupiter lined up with this and this heavenly body did this and reflected this. The Greek word is aster and it means star. But, stay with me. Stars don't move to lead people. People follow stars because they're fixed in the sky. Right? Think North Star. Follow the North Star to go north, right? If the North Star starts moving, you got trouble. You end up at the South Pole and you're like, what happened here? But this star that they had seen previously now goes before them until it comes to rest. So that means it was moving. It's not like they're following it out here. It's moving, they're following it, and then it comes to rest over the place where the child was. Makes me think of like a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. I think this star was God's way of leading these worshipers to the place where the one they wanted to worship was. A lot of noted theologians and people I respect and admire, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and others, they believe this was the literal glory of God that was leading the wise men to the place where the child was. Makes sense to me. Stars don't move, y'all. If they do, we've got problems. But anyway, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so now they arrived to where the star led them. It, 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 it stopped over the house where Jesus was. Verses, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So one more misconception from Hallmark to note here, by the way. 
We know the Magi had seen the star when they were in Persia, so they had, that had been a while ago. Remember when we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah, how long did it take to get from Persia to Jerusalem? At least four months, they say. And that's traveling across the desert on a horse with no name. Okay. <laughs> so they had seen the star at least four months before, we think. So we know from that and from the fact that this verse says that they went into the house that the wise men weren't at the manger with the shepherds. Okay? So it's all lies. You've been told lies your whole life. The nativity is a lie. So this that we're talking about here, this was later than the birth of Jesus. And they're in a house, not a stable. We said earlier that Joseph and Mary were living in Bethlehem, and we see the proof here. And what did these magi do when they saw the child? They worshipped him. Now note, they didn't worship him and his mother. They worshipped him. This is prostrate reverence before deity, not warm regards for an earthly ruler. These guys knew Jesus was divine, and they fell down and worshipped him. They're like, oh, look at the baby. No, no, no. On their face, giving honor and reverence to Him. And they also gave gifts. Now the gifts are right. Everything you've heard about the gifts is true. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I'm not sure they meant to do it this way. Maybe they did. But gold is a gift for kings. Frankincense was used in worship, so it's a gift for priests. And myrrh was used to prepare dead bodies, so it's a gift for a corpse. Jesus was king, Jesus was priest, and Jesus came to die. Seems a little bit more than just coincidental, don't you think? And these gifts would be worth a lot of money. These were rich, powerful people. Bringing them, the Persian traveling baby shower probably took care of Jesus and his family for quite a while. And it shows that giving is worship as well. We'll talk about that later. The Magi gave gifts to the king as they worshipped. There's surely something there that we'll talk about. So now, verse 12, as we finish the passage from today. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. After their in-person worship with Jesus, the Magi get visited in a dream, just like Joseph had, and they're told not to return to Herod. And so, what do they do? They return home by another way. They went back down through Mullins and Leicester, they didn't go over Tam's Mountain. <laughs> it's true, y'all. <clears throat> they returned home by another way. God was protecting His Son. God was preserving His plan and making sure that Herod didn't find out where the child was. Listen to me. Herod was not the one in control here. God was. Just a little snapshot here. Later in life, Jesus refers to Herod the Great's son... Herod Antipas, Antipas, however you want to say it, however I want to say it, because I'm talking. He refers to Herod's son this way. After Herod died, he calls Herod, Herod's son something very peculiar. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus is like, Oh, no. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. They're like, you better get out of here. Herod's trying to kill you. He's like, you go tell that fox, which was not a very kind thing to say. 
insignificant, hassle, nuisance. Tell that fox, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And that's just to show us again, Jesus wasn't worried about Herod's boy, and God was not worried about Herod. God had a plan, and He made sure that the Magi were in on it. So, that's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of information. So the question is what now? How do we apply it? And we always apply it in three points, right? <laughs> Not always. Sometimes I, sometimes it's a five. And I'm like, All right, give me a break. Three W's this morning. Worship, warfare, and waste. Worship, warfare, W-A-S-T-E, by the way. Not this. A waste is a terrible thing to mind. So. <laughs> Worship, warfare, and waste are our application points this morning. The first is worship. This is the point of the, of the text. Okay? These magi came to worship. That was their single purpose. They came to worship Jesus, who was the newborn king that they had learned so much about through the Jewish scriptures. And I want you to think about what they did. They made a trek of several hundred, maybe a thousand miles to bring very expensive gifts and prostrate and humble themselves before a baby. Now that doesn't make any sense whatsoever unless that baby is God in the flesh. And He was. And they knew that. So in that case, it made all the sense in the world. So let me ask you, application-wise... How are you doing in the worship area of your life? Hopefully, you think that's not a good question. Why? Because your whole life is supposed to be worship. Romans 12.1 from all those months ago, maybe over a year ago now. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Your body and the life you live in and through it are made for worship. And not just, hey God, I know you're there type of worship, but costly, humbling worship. Giving of yourself, body, soul, and spirit to loving and serving God. When we really know who Jesus is, like the Magi, we will come and adore Him with every thought, word, action, emotion, and intention. It will cost us everything. And we will gladly give it. The word for worship in our passage today is this. Proskuneo. 60 times in the Bible. To kiss the hand to or towards one in token of reverence. Kissing the king's hand. Among the Orientals, especially the Persians, huh? To fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. That's what the Magi did before Jesus. In the New Testament, by kneeling or prostration to do homage to one or to make obeisance, whether in order to express respect or to make supplication, used of homage shown to men and beings of superior rank. And the Persians had different stages of that. If you were equal with somebody, you came up and you kissed them on the lips. 
If you weren't equal with them, you kissed them on the cheek. And if they were of much higher rank than you, you put your face to the ground and you blew kisses in their direction because you reverenced them and you honored them and you showed them respect and you were not worthy to go face to face with them. And these magi came and they put their faces to the ground and showed honor to this baby. Now let me ask you again. How are you doing in your worship of God? Do you understand that He is worthy of reverence? Do you kneel before Him? Literally. Do you get on your knees? Do you get on your face? And understand that He is God. Do you respect Him? Do you make supplication before Him? Do you recognize His superior rank? How about your giving? We've got a box out there that we give in. How are you doing there? Because your giving is worship too. Or do you throw some money in there because it's a drudgery or it's mechanical? Or maybe you don't put anything in there. You're not worshiping the church when you put money in there. You're worshiping God. How are you doing in your giving? Because that's part of your worship too. So the application is worship your king, church. Every day, all day, in all that you do and in why you do it. Life is worship. So worship Him rightly. What was the second point? Worship, warfare. Do you see the warfare going on in our passage today? The enemy has a firm grip on his puppet Herod, Herod the Great. And the enemy is working to try to kill the newly born king of kings. Now my question is this. Go beyond Herod, and do you see the warfare happening as the religious people of the day advise this despot on where to find this holy one who is his enemy? The chief priests and the scribes. Satan's got his tentacles in them too. And they're his puppet as well. That's warfare. That's spiritual warfare. So let me ask you this question. What about in your life? Do you see the warfare waging all around you in your everyday life? Because listen to me, it's happening. You are a soldier if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And if you're not fighting... You are being fought and you must be numbed into not seeing the catastrophic losses that you are suffering. Just because you're not fighting doesn't mean the enemy isn't fighting you. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 say this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And you know what? I'm afraid that we walk around so apathetic and unaware of the battle that we are in. We got important stuff we got to get done. And we do. But do you understand that you are in a war? There is a lion crouching at your door every day. 
What are you doing about it? Grab a piece of toast and run out the door and hope he don't get you? Be sober-minded, Peter says. Be watchful. Resist the devil. Firm in your faith. Do you see the heat and the sweat in these words? Life is worship, we saw, and worship is a battle. So fight! Fight the devil. Fight the world. Fight your flesh. I promise that your enemies are not leaving you alone because you're not a threat. If you name the name of Jesus, you are an affront to and an adversary of Satan and his horde. And they are fighting against you. So the application for us is to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to resist the devil, firm in your faith. Genesis 4-7 says it this way, If you do well, will not you be accepted? Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Nobody can do that for you. Sunday morning worship can't do that for you on Tuesday morning or Friday night. We can prepare you for it, but you've got to do it. You've got to fight. That's on you. And the battle is roaring all around you. Engage it because we can't lose. We know the end of the war. We know who gets crowned king because he's already got the crown. And it's his army that we're in. But step up and fight. How do you fight? You fight by your prayers. Prayer is spiritual warfare, that's exactly what you're doing. You fight by buffeting your body and making it your slave so that you don't give it to sin. You fight by reaching out to others who are in need and sharing the gospel and gospel love with them. And you do it by calling the devil a liar every day and not believing the lies that he tries to feed you. It's warfare. Worship, warfare, and waste. Waste. W-A-S-T-E. Waste. After seeing that we are to worship and be about the warfare we are in the midst of every day, I want to leave this passage thinking about waste. And I want to think about it in two different ways. And we're going to look at it in two different ways. Stay with me. Looking at the four main players in our narrative today. Who are the four main players? Herod and the chief priests and scribes on one hand. So Herod, chief priests and scribes, they're together. Jesus and the Magi, on the other hand. Okay, you with me? Herod and chief priests and scribes, Jesus and the Magi. We're going to look at waste from their perspective. My question is this, and it's the same question I asked you at the beginning. Out of these two pairs of people, which one wasted their lives? Was it Herod and his priests or Jesus and the Magi? And I'm tricking you. Because I'm going to say that both of them wasted their lives. But in different ways. One in a bad way, one in a good way. Let me explain. First, let's look at Herod and the chief priests and scribes. It seems to me that they wasted their lives in a bad way. Yeah, that makes sense, right? The bad way is that they were all about them. 
Herod was consumed with protecting his rule and his kingship for himself. Herod was all about himself. The chief priests and scribes gave Herod the information he wanted to appease him and protect themselves. It was all about them, their place and their power and their protection. And I want to present to you that they all wasted their lives. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 16, 25 and 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Herod and the priests only wanted to save their lives. And in return they lost it. Herod died not too long after all this, by the way. Very close to this time. So how did they waste their lives? Jesus said in the passage that we just read that if you want to save your life, you will lose it. Losing is wasting. Now let me ask you this. Do you just want a comfortable, safe life where you and yours are taken care of, retire early with a cushy income, live to be 92 and in good health and pass away quietly in your sleep and have people say nice things about you in your funeral? Is that your goal? Then you are wasting your Wasting your life in Jerusalem to appease an earthly ruler for your comfort when God Himself is in Bethlehem five miles away. Wasting your life fearing the loss of your kingdom when the Ancient of Days who will rule forever is growing up the next town over. Wasting your life accumulating things and stuff so that it can be divided among your kids when you're gone. You're wasting your life. But what should we do? When we look at the Magi and Jesus, we see waste that glorifies God. The world would say that the Magi wasted their time and their expensive gifts on a Jewish peasant in Bethlehem, a baby even. The world would say that Jesus, with all His power and possibilities, could have and should have done so much more. He should have exalted himself to the halls of power and changed laws and maybe eradicated polio and a million other things. But the Magi crossed the desert to worship a baby who they knew was God. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came and was born of a virgin so that he could die, laying his life down for his people and for the glory of God. What a waste, right? But in God's economy, their waste was their glory. They wasted themselves on God and His glory. And so should we. I've mentioned Watchman Nee a few times in messages in the past, in books he's written. Brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant man. Who gave his life to help establish the underground church in China. And he tells the story of seeing one of his old professors later on in his life. By this point, Watchman Nee had been very ill for a long period of time. He was walking with a cane. He looked terrible. And his professor saw him. He said, what are you doing? You know, what's, what have you done with your life? And he said, I've given my life to serve in the church of Jesus Christ so that we can glorify God. And he said, his professor looked at him and said, look at you. What a waste. You were brilliant. 
You had a promising future, and now this is you? And he said, the professor shook his head and walked away. What a waste. What a waste. People should look at our lives and declare them utter wastes in their estimation. Trigger a story in your mind about somebody in the Bible, a lady named Mary, who took the most expensive thing she had, an alabaster box of ointment that was supposed to be for her funeral, her burial, and she broke it open in the presence of everybody and poured it on Jesus' head and Jesus' feet. She took the very best she had and she broke it and she poured it out for Jesus. Even the disciples were horrified. Listen to this. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But now watch what Jesus says in response. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She wasted her best on the sweaty, dirty feet and head of Jesus. These magi wasted all this time, all these gifts to lay down before a baby. Jesus Christ, the omnipotent Son of God, laid His life down on a Roman cross. What a waste. Jesus said that she had wasted herself and her wealth on Him and was to be commended for it, even saying that her waste would be commemorated throughout time whenever the gospel was proclaimed. And we just read it. And what she did is being proclaimed even today. And all the world can and will see it. So if we're going to waste our lives... And we should. We are to waste them on the Word of God. We are to waste our lives on the people of God. We are to waste our lives on the Gospel of God. And we are to waste our lives for the glory of God. That 23-year-old young lady who died in Cameroon, who had a spot in Harvard Law School in fall, was over there feeding homeless children. And people shook their heads and said, What a waste. She could have done so much. And Jesus Christ stood when she went into heaven and said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And the 92-year-old man who died in his sleep faced his judge with nothing to show except what he had accumulated on earth. And he wasted it. Don't waste your life, church. Not that way. Let people shake their heads in derision and say, what a waste. You could do so much more, but you're following Jesus? Absolutely. 
pour yourself out for Jesus and let the world around us lament the waste while God rewards and blesses us. Worship, warfare, and waste. May they characterize our lives to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, you are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our worship. And to you alone belongs all glory. May we spend and exhaust and waste our lives for you. May we lay our lives down, knowing that when we lose our lives, we truly find it. And we find our life in you, Jesus. You're not a baby anymore. You're not an infant receiving gifts from wise men from the east. But you are the king of all kings who receives glory from your people. And one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. So may we waste our lives pursuing your glory. We ask for your Spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can.